everyone, and welcome to the Nighthawks Nation podcast, a podcast not only for Nighthawks fans, but a place to find everything you need to know about Canadian basketball. I'm your host, Julia, and I'm joined with Alex. Hi, everyone. And our newest member of our team, Ziv. Hello, everyone. My name is Ziv, and I'm super glad to be joining the Nighthawks this season, and we're going to make this journey super, super fun. Super excited. Uh, so today we are in St. Catharines in the beautiful CEBL studios, uh, and we're joined today with Mike Morialli, the commissioner and CEO of the CEBL. Mike was a two-time Grey Cup championship champion in the 90s, head of a professional players union, broadcaster, community leader, and successful business executive. Mike, we're so happy to have you on today. Thank you so much for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And yeah, I played in the 90s and the 2000s. Oh, yeah, sorry. Because <laughs> I am old, but... Uh, we don't want to age No, no, I, I, it, just the early 2000s, so you're good. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Awesome. Um, so... We're obviously in the CEBL studios, so I was wondering if you could tell us how, the story behind the CEBL. How, how did this start? You know, it's an interesting story. So I, uh, of course, spent a long time in professional football and, and was able to, you know, see the whole, all the sides um, as a player, as an executive, uh, player president. I did broadcast and did a lot of work with the league office. Uh, so I got a pretty good sense of how the league operated and always believed or always wanted to remain in sport in some level on the, uh, more on the operation side, less on the, um, you know, football side per se. So that always interested me. I was always an entrepreneur at heart. Um, but in a league like the CFL, a lot of change doesn't happen. It's just, it's a lot of people kind of, you know, in the same position, but it wearing a different color jersey. So, you know, I kind of cut, you know, caught on to the fact that maybe it was going to be hard to crack that, even though I thought I was qualified for it. And uh, I had a chance meeting with uh, Richard Petko, who was the founder of the CBL, uh, through another business. He was the very first person I sold something to, and we befriended each other. He knew me from my time in the CFL. And he owned the River Lions, which were playing in a different league at the time, and, and was, was concerned with the direction of the league and invited me out and started picking my brain about, you know, how do you help here, how do you help there? And that really morphed into how do we build a better league? How do we build a league that accomplishes everything that we want and how would you build it? And that coming together of Richard and myself and of course adding pieces along the way was the evolution of what is now the CBL. So we've come a long way in about six years. Yeah, so when you say he invited you out, was it to like dinner, was it a meeting? How did that like, yeah, no, good question. We, uh, yeah, there wasn't there wasn't enough drinks at that time, <laughs> unfortunately. It was uh, it was just a meeting that we had initially, you know, over the phone. Okay. Uh, and then when we got more comfortable with, okay, this may be a real opportunity. Then we sat down. Uh, I won't forget. He brought his uh, some of his front office staff from the River Lions at that time. Um, including my current right-hand person, Josh Knuster, who's our, our VP. And I, four people sat in front of me. It was, it was Michelle Biscop from the River Lions and Jeff Soterio, who's the president of the River Lions, uh, Richard Petko, and Josh Knuster. And I was the only person on the other side of the table. And they kind of were grilling me to, okay, tell us your plan. And I felt like, okay, well, this is what I think. And this is, you know, based on my knowledge, what I've seen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was the, the first start to really lay out my vision and then combine it with Richard's. Richard had very um, strong opinions on certain things, which, which is, are all integrated in the CBL based when we play and, and the level of talent and, and, and how we operate. Um, 
He was the one that put forward the, you know, quite a bit of money to get it off the ground. But at that particular moment, I kind of knew, okay, we're, we're in the early stages of something really cool here. And before we left, he said, okay, we move forward with this. Um, he goes, you got to take this guy. And he pointed at Josh, Josh Canooster at the time didn't know any, he probably was 23 maybe at that time. And I said, I got to take that kid. Yeah. Um, all right, we'll see what happens. And then I spent the first year and a half working next door to this office and the River Lions office at the boardroom table. And I was still working at my other job, but I would come and, and kind of start putting together the pieces of what is now the CBL. Did he say why you, why he picked you to be one of the leaders of the CBL, or is it just I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, he knew of me, um, I think, as he got to know me more and my understanding of leagues and how they should operate or how they shouldn't operate he was intrigued uh he actually I, I left out a big part to the story but he actually pitched me to be the commissioner of the uh, nbl at the time the other league and i just i quickly realized it wasn't for me okay. and and said the same to him and he said well that's why i sent you in there so let's go ahead and let's do it the right way and this is what we've done why do you think the uh why was the CBL right for you then? It was right for me, and it still is right for me because of the amount of creativity I'm allowed to have. And Richard is the best owner I've ever had because Richard leaves me alone in all the good ways. Richard has other jobs and other responsibilities and other companies, so he's entrusted in me what we see as a CBL. So that faith and that trust has allowed me to to really do what I like to do and be creative. He's never said no to me once. Um, I can remember early on in saying, okay, Richard, I would call him up. I'd like to do this. He said, don't call me. I hired you to make, you, you're, that's why you're there. You make the decisions, I trust you. That relationship and that ability to allow me um, to do my job and to, to create and not to be uh, you know, held down from, from trying different things is is what I like to give to my staff and allow them to do the same. But that that ability to really just be myself, not have to answer to somebody, not be worried about the decisions I was making, just making them and in, in, in the trust and belief has been uh, you know the greatest thing that's that's happened at least to me in in my professional career. Yeah, no, um, that's amazing. It sounds like amazing partnership between you guys. And um, um, when we asked you the last question, you kind of mentioned how. Um, the starting point of CEBL is you guys wanting to build a better league. Um, can you maybe expand on that? What are the goals of CEBL and um, what are the long-term things that you guys are trying to do for Canadian basketball and things like that? No, great question. I mean, we, we still hold true those, to those same core values that we did when we started. Um, one, we we're going to be pro-Canadian. Uh, we were going to showcase our best players that have had to leave. We were going to develop our new players that are, are coming. We wanted to play FIBA basketball because FIBA is the most widely played game in the world. Um, it's the one that we're going to, you know, challenge for when our, you know, senior uh, men's and women's national teams play at the Olympics or World Cups. It's all FIBA, and we're very influenced here by the NBA because we're in North America. So, uh, number one was joining forces with Canada Basketball and aligning with the federation to say, okay, we have common goals here. How do we work together to bring this ecosystem together, um, and and how do we deliver not only great basketball but great entertainment? We want it to be something because of when we play in the spring and summer, which again was a, a factor that we 
really was important to us because it allows us the best talent. You know, we thought that we could really uh, become a place within the sporting culture of Canada that was underserviced. And, you know, with the exception of the Raptors, there really was no other basketball being played at a high, high level. And we wanted to be that league. And we started, you know, it was six teams and we flew across the country and tried to get relationships with the markets we were in and the venues we were in and uh, never asked anybody for a dime, never went to city councils and said, we're not coming unless you do this. You're, we're not coming unless you do that. We really believed in what we were doing. And uh, it was all bootstrapped. It was all, you know, we worked tremendously hard. Um, to get to the point where we felt that the framework was there. But one of the big things, and you know, this is really all on Richard, was the governance. And that was a single entity structure, which means you know, the league owns and operates the teams, um, which is different than most other leagues, uh, although very similar to the MLS, and we've seen their success lately. But that was all on Richard. So that was his choice to decide. I, I said that would be the best format. He had the one that writes the check, so he had to agree with it too, and he certainly did. And that has really allowed us to grow and flourish um, while others maybe haven't had that opportunity. Uh, speaking of growing and flourishing, uh, you just added two new teams to the league, the Scarborough and Newfoundland. And Montreal. Oh, and Montreal. Sorry, we can't forget about Montreal. That's yeah, forget <laughs> that road trip. Yeah. That, how is that going? Are you thinking of expanding to more um, markets? Are you happy with what we have now, or what's the plan? I've always been happy. I was happy when we had six. I was happy when we had seven with Ottawa, and I'm incredibly happy when we have ten. I don't think we've, all, we've really attempted to be the biggest league in Canada. We are. Uh, yeah. We're a coast-to-coast -coast league. We have our eyes on other markets, and I've not been shy about that. We want to get to Winnipeg and Calgary and Quebec City and, and out east and into um, you know another team in, in BC somewhere. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to get to that 15 teams and get into a divisional model, east, west, and central. That's always been the goal. We are on track. I, I you know I honestly at this point in time as I sit here, I think that's probably two to four years away. Wow, that's um, really quick. And then what that happens is as we get to a divisional model, there's less cross-country travel, which means there's more game days available to us to play. So we can increase the number of games, change our playoff format, and really you know, become the destination for basketball, um, if we aren't already. But we want to continue to build and grow and develop that. I think going off that question, where do you see the league in 10 years? I mean, Continuing on that trend, I, I think, you know, I don't look at, at success based on number of teams. I look at success based on the influence we're having on the overall basketball landscape. So we are delivering basketball in markets like Guelph that, you know, are underserved from that perspective or Saskatoon or Newfoundland, uh, or it, you name a lot of, we have some big markets too, obviously with yeah. Ottawa and Scarborough and Hamilton and in the Fraser Valley and Montreal, et cetera. But we really want to get into communities that have been underserved. So um, 10 years from now, you know, I, I hope we are attracting, continuing to attract the best talent, that we are graduating players to higher levels and bigger, better contracts and the NBA if that's their goal. Uh, that we're graduating coaches and we're developing new talent and ultimately we're helping you know Canadian basketball reach its full potential and win Olympic gold medals both men's and women's and I see a women's league and I see uh, a second division and a bunch of stuff that we can attain uh, it's there. 
I want to ask you about the women's league because yeah. you're talking about the best talent and obviously there's amazing women basketball players in Canada too. So do you have like a, an ideal timeline of when you would want a women's basketball league added to the CEBL? I, I do. I, I mean, it's the women's league is something that we are certainly committed to and it's something that we feel because of how we operate centrally and that whole single entity model allows us to really administratively take care of a lot of the things that would be difficult to start a league from scratch. Mm -hmm. So because we have that infrastructure, you know, we're putting our hands up and say, listen, we're, we're happy to help operate this league. And in conjunction with Canada basketball, and you know, the big thing is in conjunction with, with partners, whether that's private partners, uh, corporate partners that will help us, you know, from a financial point of view. Uh, Richard didn't set out to also have a women's league. This is morphed. Yeah. Um, so now it's about <clears throat> finding the right people to help grow the game. But I would argue that we have tremendous ma male players. We have equally, if not better, female players. They are ranked higher internationally and nationally uh, on the world stage. They just don't play enough together because they have to go elsewhere. It's very similar to the men's model. They've all had to leave. Well, we want to bring them back and help develop from within. So I think that is on its way. I'd like to see it in the next couple of years. I really would. Um, and we're working towards that. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And um, I like to um, switch gears a little bit and talk uh, specific basketball for a little bit. And um, one of the things that when I first started looking into CEBL that really interested me was the um, the Elam ending. And um, that's not a format that's like conventionally used throughout uh, professional basketball leagues. Obviously, it's gotten more um, recognition in NBA, like all-star games and stuff. But what are the decisions that um, you guys made um, that went into, you know, ended up having the CBL uh, doing the Elam ending and why do you think that's a uh, good format for this game? It, it's, it's interesting because a lot of it's feel. A lot of it's, you know, I, I've been following the TBT, which called the basketball tournament, which was the first to adopt the Elam ending going back about five years ago. Um, they're a summer tournament, they're a winner-take-all, and uh, they're not a league, but they, they obviously, within a short time span, over a few, several weeks, they really come together and play high-level basketball, and it was very interesting to watch how it played out, and interesting to see how much better it was than your traditional end to a basketball game. You know, to take it a step further, we, we got in contact with Nick Elam, who was the professor that actually developed the Elam ending. Um, he is uh, a Mensa, from Mensa, so he is brilliant uh, from a mathematical point of view, and he's a data guy. So, you know, we got into what is Elam, how did it get created, how did you figure out, what are the data points, you know, how does it work, why does it work, how does it compare to how you regularly finish a game. Sorry, um, just for like yes. the listeners, can you maybe like give a brief overview of what the Elam yes. ending is? Just Absolutely. So um, before we made the decision, we had to figure out what Elam was. And Elam can take on many forms, but essentially uh, it's, a, it's what's calling setting a target score. So all leagues do it a little bit differently. The, the only real people that use it are ourselves and TBT. Um, you know, at the four minute mark of our final quarter in the fourth quarter, uh, at the four minute or below, at the next stoppage in play, the game clock shuts off. At that point in time, we add plus nine to the winning team score. So let's say the Nighthawks are up 80 to 79. Uh, at that first stoppage, we would look at the score and set it to 89. Both teams race to that score. So both teams now have a chance to win the game. And instead of the leading team, um, you know, or the losing team, the team trailing, 
fouling, uh, needless timeouts, uh, really breaking rules of the game to try to get that advantage back. This is about you know, the race to nine and whoever scores the last bucket wins. It's the whole backyard basketball. It's very um, innovative in a way that it allows people just to go out and play basketball. You can't take needless fouls. You can't have these excessive timeouts. The clock is off. You're still playing with a shot clock and every single game ends on a winning bucket. And, you know, it really creates a situation where everything that's happened in the first three quarters and, you know, six minutes has led up to this sprint at the end to win a game. And um, in our thought, in my thought of, of watching it, I just felt like it was better. And when I brought it to, and of course, at, at that point, I think the, um, we had already been looking at it and then the NBA had made that decision when Kobe passed to have the, the, the all-star game yeah. in the fourth quarter and it got a lot of buzz and people were talking. It's gotten great buzz since then. Um, you know, we knew that the NBA just doesn't dabble in things. Yeah, yeah. The to NBA be <laughs> makes decisions that are well thought out, and now it may be ten years from now that it gets implemented. Mm -hmm. But there's a reason why they do what they do. So we believe it's going to go mainstream. That's not why we made the decision. We made the decision because it's the best way to end a basketball game. Exactly. And when I went to go tell the coaches and GMs that, they may not have agreed with me at that particular time. Was there a lot of... Uh, there was a ton of pushback. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> an incredible amount of pushback. Um, How'd you convince them? I just said, we're going to do this this year. <laughs> okay. There was no convincing. Um, but looking back now, and if I went and asked all those coaches, and I have, or they've come to me willingly and said, man, I hated it but it's the best way to end a basketball game. Oh, it's what more exciting. Did, what didn't they like about it, if, if you don't mind me asking? If you've met coaches in your life, they're nuts. Um, they, all they want to do is win. <laughs> yeah. It's highly competitive, and they've been you know, structured in a way that they have a way that they um, finish games in the traditional basketball sense, and they've grown up their whole life. Some of our coaches are 50, some are 35, some are anywhere in between. So they've spent decades playing one way and learning one way and being taught one way. So to throw a wrench into that is like, you know, the, the, the world's exploding around them. However, I like to challenge my people. I challenge my people here and they always rise to the occasion. I challenge my coaches and GMs and put them in uncomfortable positions because I believe that the end result will be right. And it's worked. So, you know, I, I heard a story once from uh, one of our uh, executive members who also happens to be the president of Hamilton, uh, John Lashway. And he said, because he knew David Stern, he spent a lot of time in the NBA. And he said the one incredible thing about David Stern was he just made decisions and he did them. And he believed them. And that's kind of how I do it. And I, and I hope that I make good decisions and I'm surrounded by good people to bounce these decisions off of. I'm not making them in a vacuum, but I'm not afraid to try new and different things. And Elam was one that has really paid off and we're still ahead of the curve. There's a lot of idiosyncrasies that because we use Elam, it, it's from a data perspective and how we deliver our games to betting companies. It's, it's like crazy because it's, it's a decision that not only affects the game, it affects a lot of things, mm -hmm. but from a marketing perspective, from a highlight perspective, from a, just the flow of a game perspective, it, it was too 
um, smart of a decision not to make, in my opinion. For you, sure. You, so you did bring up betting, and now you have four franchises in Ontario, and obviously recently... Five. Five, sorry. <laughs> five, <laughs> sorry. Five. We got we to gotta teach you math and Guelph here a little bit uh, here. We're all journalism <laughs> students. We sorry, math. Math. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Day one, they said yeah. math wasn't our thing. No, good. Um, <laughs> obviously, now it's become legal in Ontario. Is that something we're going to see the CBL get more involved in? Yes, absolutely. And, and there, there are levels to it. Uh, you know, the, the betting landscape has changed, obviously. It's become the norm, which is similar to what we've seen in the U.S., et cetera, or overseas in Europe. Um, and from a league perspective, obviously, there's an influx of cash that comes with betting partners. That's important to, to help operate a league. But more importantly is, is the marketing and awareness that comes out of betting. Because once you have a betting partner, then you set lines and you set odds and people are looking at the rosters and who's playing and who's not playing and um, what this player did the last time against this team or that team. So all of that just puts a lot more pressure on us to prepare that content so that we can have it. But also it draws more eyeballs that didn't or weren't aware of us. So because we play in the off-season of, of pro basketball, typically the NBA's done, the G League's done, uh, the European season's done, there's a, a, about 70% of our season takes place without any other basketball. So if you're a basketball gambler, and basketball is probably the top two handle out mm -hmm. there in terms of the people that game, uh, bet on it, then we become uh, a natural way place to turn their attention to because we're playing 107 games and there's a game to bet on or multiple games to bet on every single night. So that awareness combined, obviously, with the revenue opportunity um, and what it can do to enhance our game experience is really important. Awesome. Uh, so what are you most excited about for the upcoming season, starting in 10 days or ju uh, just under 10 days? Yeah, it's crazy. Um, I, I, I'm excited about everything. I mean, we're, we're, again, we're coast to coast and we have three new teams and it makes me scared in some respect because it's like uh, our other seven teams have, have got used to how we operate and then we have three new teams on board and it, everyone's done a tremendous job and we have so many great people that work across our teams that actually, you know, take on other roles with other teams to ensure that no one's dropping a ball. So. The excitement of walking into these three new venues, whether it's in Scarborough or in Montreal or in uh, St. John, Newfoundland, and to be able to, to, you know, have that experience that I had, let's say, you know, four years ago when I walked into those six uh, places, or uh, the ability to, I had to wait till last year to go to Ottawa because we played in a bubble the first year they yeah. signed, and to see the crowd there, and it's, it's a sense of accomplishment. It makes you feel really good um, that all the hard work has paid off, but. Getting to see some basketball again. Getting you, to see fans in the stands again. Do I mean, you go to every good. game? or I go to as many games as I can get to. Okay. And still maintain you know, <laughs> my family life <laughs> as much as I can. I have a, I'm blessed with a uh, beautiful, thoughtful wife and, and, and two daughters. And they allow their dad to kind of go and travel and do all those things. But they also come with me and enjoy uh, the yeah, games. Yeah, I was going to ask if they get to join. Uh, yeah, they, they have their favorite, favorite My little daughter, Sophia's favorite team is Guelph. Oh, I was going to oh, say you have let's to say go. that. Favorite team <laughs> well, let's go. Without a doubt. Are we going to see the Nighthawks? <laughs> I, I will say it's more so because you had that kid zone in one end and she can go in color and do her other thing. But hey, yeah. it, made, it made for a better viewing experience for me. She was happy. I was happy. Exactly. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, I'm excited for everything. You know, we, we accomplished a lot last year. 
um, the last couple of years, really, and and graduating players to the NBA and getting players better contracts, all these things. So there are players that are going to be playing across our league this year that will go on to make their mark in bigger leagues with more opportunities. We hope they come back every year, but if we lose them to the NBA or others, then we've done our job. Awesome. All right, so we're going to move more into like your background to kind of get to know a little bit more about you. Um, and obviously, as we mentioned, you played in Grey Cup. Uh, so how did you get into football? I, you know, I, I grew up playing soccer. I played 16 years of rep soccer. I was a goalie, actually, and I think that is why I was blessed with, I was a receiver in football. I think that's okay. why I was blessed actually with pretty good reaction to the ball and the decent hands, that, you know, thinking back. Um, I didn't play football until I was in grade 10. My dad wow. wouldn't let me play. I was undersized. He had played in university and in high school, uh, so I was around it. My family was a huge football fans, uh, both the Morielli side and the Masati side. I, my cousin Paul played for the Toronto Argos, and his brother, my other cousin Christian, played at Edmonton. So I was kind of, when I was, when I did start playing in grade 10, I, I had those people to look up to, and I was a huge Ticat fan. I mean, I can remember all those days at the Iverwind Stadium and watching Rocky DiPietro and Grover Covington and all these great players and, and, and just dreaming of being on that field one day, which, which is important to this story because that's exactly the feeling I want kids to get when they watch our games. I want them to think and believe that they can get on that court and have a real opportunity. And, and that's important. So that became true for me. I followed my dreams. I worked mm -hmm. hard. You know, I was, a, I was obviously a, a decent football player in high school. Uh, I stayed local. I went to McMaster and, and uh, had a good career there. We never made the playoffs once in my four years there. <laughs> Um, was that like your goal? Well, my goal was just to, you know, to play football. I would have liked to win. Yeah. Um, but in the end, my eyes were on, okay, I want to play professional football. I want to play in the CFL. I want to be like my cousin Paul. I want to be like my cousin Christian. I want to be like the guys I saw on TV or at the, at the stadium. And um, just that drive to succeed is what really got me there. Okay. Um, so kind of like um, next question we want to go into is after you football playing, your football playing career, um, what made you decide that um, you want to stay in sports and do more sports management stuff? I, I really enjoyed it. I, I got lucky. I retired in 2007. And then within a month or so, for, or just actually immediately after retiring, I, uh, the Players Association reached out to me, the president at that time, and said, listen, um, about a year or two previously, I was on the executive team and we established this uh, new marketing arm for the Players Association called Pro Players. And it was built off uh, what the NFL did and their Players Inc. And it was just an opportunity to help players market themselves and make money off the court. Uh, or off the, the field in this case. Um, so when they called me, they said, listen, we'd love you to take over the role of uh, VP in the business development at, at Pro Players. And I said, well, that's amazing. Just, you know, I just literally finished, so just give me some time. And I realized, you know, in very short period of time that, wow, this is a great soft spot for me to land. I'm still in football. Uh, I'm connected to the game. I'm helping the players. I'm around the players. I'm around the league. Uh, I'm going across the country, and I'm trying to make you know the conditions, the working conditions for players better, give them more money, et cetera. So that was that was really great uh, for me, and that's where I learned a lot of the behind the scenes stuff. Uh, and then I morphed into becoming uh, president of the Players Association. It was privy to all the financial documents and all the part of collective bargaining agreements and all that stuff. So that was 
you know, I went to school without going to school, so to speak. I was, yeah. it was real life learning. Um, so I, I had a passion for it. And, you know, when my presidency came to the end in 2014, then the real world started. And that's the scariest part because at, in 2014, I was, you know, 34 years old, 35 years old, maybe 33, whatever. My math ain't not that good. Uh, I'm, 50, I'm 50 that now, so we'll figure that out. It's okay. We'll let you do the math <laughs> later. Well, yeah, uh, we'll but, uh, you know, I was just, I was now competing in the real world with people your age, right? Yeah. And it was, it was an eye-opener because I played a long time, played 12 years, and... The great part about playing 12 years is you get to play 12 years, and a lot of people yeah. don't. The interesting part is when you're done, now you're this middle-aged, so, so to speak, um, you know, person getting, entering into the workforce. And uh, that was interesting, and, and it took some time from that time until I met Richard. You know, it was probably three, three and a half years that I had to find something that interested me. And I, I took a couple roles that were, eh. I mean, looking back, I was like, well, I just had to do it, and it's like starting over. And mm -hmm. then, you know, when I met Richard and I had taken on a new role, really good role, um, with another company, it just, it seemed to be that all the hard work I put in and all those hours of on and off the field uh, and in the community really paid off. And uh, and sometimes it, life just works that way. Right. And, and you, so you have all these different experiences. And if you look at, you know, commissioners of other, let's say, let's look at the big four. A lot of them are lawyers or predominantly in business. You are a player. You're part of Players Association. Like, you just have all these different experiences. How do you think that affects the way you run the league? Well, I find a lot of those commissioners boring. So do I. Probably because they are lawyers yeah. at heart and they are very kind of, uh, you know, stick to, you know, what's right and what's not. I shouldn't say what's right and what's wrong, but they're very regimented in how yeah. they do things and everything's litigious and they always think with risk associated to it. I'm a bit of a risk taker, so I'm willing to accept the level of risk if, if I think that there could be some success on the other line, uh, the other side. Um, you know, it's certainly my time as a player is the first thing that comes to mind in any decision I make. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we always look at the players as our biggest asset. So we have to take care of our players and we have to provide them with um, the proper tools and the proper gear and the proper accommodations and the proper training and travel and, and everything because we, it, they're representative of us and what we're trying to build. So, um, being a player, most commissioners, and I'm just generalizing, but most commissioners had a, have an adversarial relationship with the players because of, you know, uh, unions and collective bargaining and, and money, really, right? Yeah. Um, we look at it a little differently. We say, okay, the players will come first and we'll figure out the other stuff um, it, because it's important to the health of the league. If, if the players aren't happy, and they're saying, don't come play here because they don't treat you well, we're not going to be around very long. So all that stuff, um, you know, comes from being a player, mm -hmm. comes from being an executive of the Players Association, understanding the needs of players and what the union stands for, but also 
because I was privy to the finances of the league, I do understand, I have to, you know, I have to understand that the dynamics and the revenue of the league and, and the role and responsibility of the league because without the league, there can be no players. So it's this relationship that you have to really work together um, and build bridges. Um, but yeah, I, I, I am different. Um, I am just myself. I, I don't try to be different. I just try to be who I am. And obviously there are some tremendous commissioners out there that have done tremendous things. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't just, you know, give people fines. They set up huge broadcast deals. And yeah. they, you know, they, these commissioners are worth lots of money and their, their, their businesses are worth lots of money. I just, I operate publicly a lot differently than they do. Sure. Uh, so unions are obviously a very hot topic at the moment. Uh, do you ever have any plans for the players to have a players union for the CEBL? Or? That, that has to be driven by the players, and I have no problem entertaining those discussions. Uh, the, where we sit in the players' career is a little different than most leagues. Most leagues, um, that is the player's career. You go to play in the NFL, you go play in the CFL, you go play in the NBA, that is what you do. In the CBL, we are fortunate that we are able to attract players that also play six, seven, eight months in other leagues all over the world. Uh, the hope is, you know, one day they don't have to do that and they can just play in the CBL. And, and as we grow, that could be part of the 10 year plan. But until then, we, we know that, you know, for the duration that we have them, we want to treat them with respect. If they want to, um, the players want to go out and unionize and, and, and do that, by all means. And I'll be an open book and very transparent and very, very understanding of their needs and concerns because I know I've been there and I've been on the bargaining table. I've been on their side supporting them. I don't want it to get to that point. I want to have a relationship where that's not necessary. Yeah. But I, at the same time, I'm, I'm totally open to that if it occurs. Awesome. Um, this question is kind of on a less serious note. And um, just out of curiosity, um, during your time as a sports broadcaster, who was the uh, coolest player that you've ever met? Oh, that's that's a good one. I, I've uh, I've been fortunate to, you know, I, I look at my career as a broadcaster. A lot of it was spent in football, of course, um, and I've worked for the Score, which was probably before your time. Um, and yeah, then the Score is pretty big. Well, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, the I got it on my phone. The Score uh, <laughs> and TSN, and then and then Rogers and Sportsnet because Sportsnet bought the Score, and then CBC. And so I've had a, you know, I've I've done University Games of the Week. I've done many many Vanier Cups and playoffs. Um, so you know when you're when you're doing broadcasting at the the amateur level, the university level, you know, I, I, I think everybody's the same. And you really want to look and, and be very positive in how you call a game because all these players have family watching and friends watching and, and they're not professionals. They're actually probably hard. It's a harder job than a professional because they got to go to school half the time and then fit in practice, et cetera. But to answer your, your point or your question, I think not just broadcast, but my career has afforded me to meet a lot of incredible people. Um, you know, whether it's playing football or traveling uh, with broadcasts, and you know, I, I, all the games, my play-by-play -play guy was Tim McAuliffe, and Tim McAuliffe is one of the best in the business, but I've also worked with Rod Smith, and I've worked with a lot of other great um, broadcaster, longtime broadcasters. But I think in terms of, of people I've met, I've been very fortunate to meet a handful of people that a lot of people don't get to meet, uh, one was Muhammad Ali, 
which yeah, was incredible. Cool. Uh, when I played with the Argos, he was, uh, they brought him in. He actually came in and, and spoke, I mean, as much as he could at that time um, with our team. Um, so that was incredible. And I've met the Michael Jordans of the world. And I've met... Uh, like, actually, Michael? Uh, both yeah. of them? Oh, <laughs> what was he oh, like the, in oh, person? Michael Jordans? Yeah. 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 Not, not Mike, the, is it the other one, an Michael actor? D? No, yeah. no, no. I haven't met him yet. <laughs> not Michael <laughs> Jordan. Jordan. I was going to say, that would be crazy. <laughs> I, I just think, you, you know, when you meet famous people or people that are you know you see on social media or tv or what have you when you finally get a chance to meet them you realize oh they're just like you and i but i'm still in awe about yeah. you know muhammad ali to me was like what like, was he like in person incredible um I, like the presence he had is you know you, you got to remember this guy transcended uh, he went beyond sport um certainly culturally uh, he would be probably have done more for that and in equality which obviously has still been worked on but diversity and standing up for your rights and uh, just incredible so um, a lot of that when you when you see somebody of of his stature and, and what he's been able to do you just kind of pause and go oh my god like that one person can do all that it's it's quite incredible do you remember what he said to you what you said to you guys it was you know at that point the parkinson's was was pretty bad and it was he was really trying to just give us kind of like um, some love and support. And um, I can't remember exactly. I was, I got to be honest, I was kind of shell-shocked just in his presence. Um, but it was, it was an incredible moment. And, and I know that, um, you know, when our players go out in the community um, and they talk to youngsters and they talk to adults and they, you know, do everything they can, shake hands, kiss babies, sign autographs. Those moments are important. And, you know, that's what the CBL is trying to do is, is to really be a community team where we're, yes, we play basketball, but we also are here to help the community and integrate ourselves in the community and, and hopefully become heroes for other youngsters around uh, everywhere we play. You mentioned before you you that your cousin was on your first cousin was on the Argos I believe you guys kind of played to you guys would have played together yes. for a few years what was that like because that's always always a big story when it happens but what was yeah. it like to play with family oh it's amazing um <laughs> you so, guys didn't bicker back and forth about well we were both receivers oh, okay. we were both receivers and so that's probably why I was a receiver because I saw him and he was excellent and uh you know he's in the Argo Hall of Fame and and you know uh, just being on the same field as him was cool and seeing how he interacted with his teammates was cool and um, you know those are some you know we won a great cup together uh, you know we won it in Hamilton the game was played in Hamilton so that was for me and for him because we're both from Stony Creek was it was a great experience um, but y you know it's it, it's funny you you get to play and I've been very fortunate that I was able to play with some of the top Hall of Fame quarterbacks that the CFL's ever seen. Um, it started my career with Kent Austin, who was a, a famous quarterback uh, and coach. Uh, then Doug Flutie, and if oh, you've really heard cool. of Doug Flutie, yeah, he's like a magician. He was the, the best football player I've ever played with. Um, Damon Allen, um, they're again, an incredible quarterback. Danny McManus, um, Anthony Calvillo, who throw more yards for anybody besides Drew Brees. Um, so when you play with quality people like that, you're bound to have a pretty decent career because they make you look good. And um, and I think that was, you know, playing with my cousin was a thrill. Playing with 
all these other incredible people was just the icing on the cake. Uh, so you are a very busy person. You're both commissioner and CEO. And running a league is obviously very busy. So what do you do to make sure you're on track, you're staying ahead of things, and like just mentally that you're able to do all the roles that you have? I'm surrounded by good people. That, that's important. I would be nothing without my staff. I'm surrounded with a good, amazing wife and a great family that's supportive of me. Can I ask how you guys met? Yes, it's, uh, she probably won't want you to hear this, but uh, okay. I'm going to have to say, we actually met in Las Vegas. Oh, and okay. I, always say, I always say, you don't usually take anything good home from Vegas, but I managed to get lucky <laughs> this time. My wife's American. She was down there for, with a bunch of girlfriends. I happened to be down there with a bunch of guys. I did not go to Vegas looking for a girlfriend at the time mm -hmm. uh, or a wife, but uh, we just hit it off. And uh, she moved up here. She's from Dallas. And crazy to think she moved from Dallas up to, uh, you know, the cold yeah. confines of uh, where we are now. Did you guys do now. long distance for a while? Or you just like you met and it was like, this is it? We, we did initially, but she had a really cool job. She was a flight attendant for Mark Cuban. Um, wow. So she flew uh, the Dallas wow. Stars, the Texas Rangers, Oakland A's, uh, the Dallas Mavs. So she's, she's got pictures with the NBA championship trophy, and she's best friends with Dirk Nowitzki and all these guys. Um, and then she would take the other jet. He had two jets, and they'd fly around uh, the Black Eyed, Pea, Black Eyed Peas. Oh. They did the Rolling Stones concert. They took everybody to uh, Tom Cruise's wedding uh, in Italy. Beyonce. Didn't she go to the wedding, but yeah. she went there. Beyonce, Jay-Z, you name it, she's been there. And one time I asked her, hey, have you been here? Have you been there? She couldn't even remember. I found her passport. She's been <laughs> everywhere ten times over. But um, so we just, in the beginning, she was in baseball. So the cool thing about that was uh, when you're doing baseball, you, you fly into Chicago, let's say, and you're there for three or four days. Mm -hmm. So that allowed me, after we kind of you know, left each other in, in Vegas, I, I think I'm like, oh, I can't let this one go. I gotta, I gotta find a way. And so that, that really allowed us, because it was the baseball season for me to fly into Chicago and spend two or three days and, and really continue to you know, build our relationship. And eventually she, uh, uh, I must have convinced her. I don't know. I convinced her I was going to come here. We'll get a pool. It'll be great. It took me 10 years to get a pool. <laughs> the pool it just got opened up the other day. Joy. But she got her pool. It took me 10 years. But uh, uh, no, I've been, I've been blessed with, with, with a great family. And they keep me grounded. I, I'm sure I drive them crazy um, because, you know, that's where I go home. And that's where I guess I get to, you know, either decompress or be very busy again. But... Um, I, stride, I try to stay on top of things as much as I can. I do a lot of thinking in the car. I do a lot of voice notes, a lot of notes to myself. And, and I got a great team both here at the office and across the league. No, that's amazing. Super uh, interesting story that you just told. And um, uh, kind of uh, a question still about the family. Um, you already mentioned that one of your daughters is a fan of the Nighthawks. We're just wondering, um, what other teams are your families um, cheering for in the CEBL? That's good. Everybody thinks I got to be a Hamilton fan because, you know, I played for the Ticats. And obviously, I'm, I'm a fan of all the teams. I, I always say I want every team to win their home games. Like, just everybody can go 10 and 10. <laughs> we'll figure out the playoff structure later. Um, I, but, you know, my daughter, it's funny, my older daughter, who's now going on 14, is at the age now where it's like, it's, it's, can you be the really kind of boring to go to game or really cool. And she finds it really cool. Um, Thank God. So, yeah. That's key. Like, no, yeah, she's at, no, she loves it. She loves <laughs> seeing the players and she loves 
texting her friends and they take and she I'm sure she thinks some of the players are cute and whatever else at this age I don't know and I'd rather not know but um, <laughs> she's become a real fan and um, of all teams you know it's it's easier for me to get to southern Ontario teams because mm -hmm. we live here um, and uh, they're all they all have all the jerseys and all the t-shirts and all the stuff so That's amazing. i leave it up to them which one to wear so if my little one wears a nighthawk jersey to a honey badger game so be it <laughs> and if one wears a honey badger jersey to uh, vice versa it is what it is they're, as long well, as they're fans if they I'm come happy. to the nighthawks exactly. we'll make sure they yes. have the yeah, you'll the switch, merch. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> switch it out exactly i asked you before where you see the league in 10 years i'm curious to know where you see yourself in five years wow um Hopefully doing exactly what I'm doing now. Uh, I, honest to God, this is the, the, the best job I've had with the best people. And we continue to add new people and, and, um, and new teams, and new opportunities, and new relationships. But I, I love what, I, what I'm doing. I really do. I'm in the right sport. I'm in the right organization. Um, it's the right time for basketball. It's the right time just based on the makeup of the country. So um, I wouldn't want to change anything. I hope I'm sitting right here uh, with you guys. Yeah, we'll, we'll do, do, do five years from now. In five years. <laughs> Tune in. Maybe there'll be something new. Who knows we'll do be podcasts anymore. Uh, okay, so we have a segment called Rapid Fire Questions where we just, we're going to pelt you with a bunch of questions, answer the first thing that comes to your mind. We don't want you to like, think okay. too hard about them. Okay, uh, what book have you been reading recently? Uh, the Tipping Point. What's that about? It's about... Um, when a business kind of comes to a head and the decisions you make to go this way or that way. Okay. Um, so it's a, it's a very interesting book. If I'm not mistaken, it's a Malcolm Gladwell book and he writes a lot of similar books on, on those similar type topics. Okay. Okay, next question. What, uh, what's your favorite movie? Shawshank Redemption. Oh, That's okay. a good uh, one. Charles Kissy said the exact same Love thing. Shawshank it's like a basketball Redemption. thing. I don't think there's a better movie out there. Okay. If do you, you haven't watched it, you okay. need yeah. to watch is it. Is it a prison movie? Yes. <laughs> okay, thank it's you. Um, yeah. I hope Charles Kissy is listening to this uh, because I said it's a prison movie and he got. Wait, he was like, he, oh, it's say? not a prison movie. It's well, a movie it's, about it, friendship. And yes, like, oh. okay. Uh, it's based in a prison, but okay. yes, it is a movie based on relationships and yes. This uh, is my redemption arc. Yes. Thank you. Uh, favorite TV show? Oh, I was going to initially say Seinfeld, um, oh. just because it just popped into my head. Yeah. But I, anything of that kind of The Office or Seinfeld, right. something that's quirky okay. and different. But I am a sucker for reality shows. So you, oh, I, right. I probably watched every reality show that's on there. Oh, okay, I've watched all that oh, stuff. Yeah. That, Since you mentioned The Office, we have to plug our um, Office show that's coming up for the Nighthawks. Oh, Everyone, nice. be the watch out on the. Yep, it's coming up. That's good. <laughs> There's another another show if you haven't watched it called Superstore. Oh. It is so good, so hilarious. good. One of my favorite shows. And I think there's, I always pick out people on the show that are basically like people in our front office, and they're almost identical characters. <laughs> so we have a good time with that. Which one are you? Oh, you know, I don't know if I put myself in the show yet, but I put a few other. I can't say it now. I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> but I'll, you know, I'll say it in front of them over there later. Okay. <laughs> uh, do you listen to podcasts? I do. What's your favorite podcast? Favorite podcast is Smartless. Okay, what's that? It is just, it's uh, Sean Hayes from, um, what's that sitcom there? I'm going to forget the oh. name of it. Uh, it'll come to me. Um, somebody help me in the rafters. Will and Grace. Will and Grace. Grace. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Shout um, out to Shelby. <laughs> 
it is Jason Bateman, yeah. who, who obviously is on Ozark now, but he was he was in a show that was called Arrested Development. Yeah. If you haven't seen Arrested it's Development, too, you have yeah. to watch Arrested Development. And the other guy that was in that show is Will Arnett, who happens mm -hmm. to be Canadian, by the Canadian. way. Mm -hmm. um, so that show, Smartless, is these three guys talking to guests on a weekly basis, and it's hilarious, it's insightful, and it's the best hour. And it's what I do every Monday when I go for a walk, usually around lunchtime, I'll pop in the AirPods and I'll listen to Smartless. That's cool. And um, next question. What music do you listen to to motivate you? And for this one, I want you to give me one that you used to listen to when you were a player to hype yourself up before game and one that you listen to now. Oh, I, I, I listen to all types of music. So obviously my wife got me onto country music. That wasn't in my repertoire before, but it is now. Uh, I like techno. I like hip hop. I like rock. Um, I think when I was younger, it always used to be kind of the, the rock and roll kind of get you started. You know, university days. Uh, was there a specific who was band? It? Who was it? Oh, you know, there was Pearl Jam and there was ACDC. Yeah. And, you know, when I grew up, it was, for me, it was the Beastie Boys, Run DMC. So those are the things that if I listen to now, that's that bit of nostalgia for me. Uh, but even back in the day, I used to love Ozzy Osbourne and Judas Priest and all these yeah. like hard rock, yeah, heavy yeah. metal bands. But that was kind of cool back then. I don't <laughs> listen to that much, not because I, I don't like it, just because I found other genres of music I like. For sure. And so what's something you do outside of running the CBL? Like, what's something you do for fun? Oh, I, I mean, I'm so... I, I do a lot of stuff. I, I try to keep myself busy so we just finished a big backyard renovation so that that kind of keeps me busy um, the pool yeah. the pool the pool is open and you guys are invited at the end of the year we'll have a party <laughs> we'll take you up uh you know and and, and just kind of um it's funny i i think a lot of my time away from work is just spent with my family like i just enjoy sometimes doing nothing if that makes sense because i spend yeah, so much amazing. time always on the go that I just like to sit down. I love food. Um, I love time spent, you know, with my family. Um, I don't get to go out as much as I would have liked because now we have a little dog now that was added to the family. So that's what another type layer. Of dog? It's a pug and a Boston Terrier mix. Okay, very cute. So it's called cute. a bug. So its name is Bugsy. And Bugsy can drive me crazy because he's still a puppy. Uh, but you know, it's it's like our family's growing and. When I have downtime, I, you know, I used to play touch football and I used to do things solely for me. Well, I don't have, you know, solely for me now means just hanging out, and and that to me is really the fun part. You said you like to spend a lot of time with your family. Is there like anything in particular you guys like to do or that you do often, or is it just spending time together? I, I think you know my wife is a, a games person. She loves to play games, loves to play dominoes, loves to play phase ten, loves to play cards. I got a basketball court in the backyard, so the kids go out there and play Ooh. basketball, or they go on scooters. Um, you know, so you know, now that the pool's open, we'll spend more time doing that. But if I can just, you know, come home, um, sit down, say hi, avoid some of the chaos of, of work. Work never ends, unfortunately. It's always there, but I have, my family understands that, hey, dad's got to take five minutes to do this or do that. Um, I'm pretty boring outside of it because I think I've just become a dad, <laughs> like, right? Yeah. And it just, you know, gone are the days where I get to do what I want to do. 
uh, I am doing what I want to do now. So when I get home, it's a chance for everyone else to have their, their Yeah, plans. you can do cannonball contests. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite drink? Both alcohol, or maybe not both alcoholic and non, but what's your favorite drink in general? Oh, lately I've been on uh, Coke Zero. I'm not a pop guy, but I'll drink some Coke Zero. I agree, Coke yeah, Zero. There you go. Yeah. I do have some people in the office that are yeah. Diet Pepsi fanatics, so I don't know. I'm <laughs> no, Pepsi the, the never <laughs> over Coke. There you no go. Way. I'm not a drinker. I, okay. I just not. I used to be, don't get me wrong, when I was playing and having fun. and um, I just... I, I just, to me, it doesn't taste good. If it tasted good, I'd have more of it. I just, I'm not a beer guy. If I get a drink, I, I, I would get something like uh, a margarita or a tequila or, or a Jack Daniels and Coke or something. I do enjoy a casual drink, but um, it's just because if I, I just don't enjoy it like I used to. Yeah. And I, don't, I can't afford the hangovers. The yeah, why I drink gotta, something if you're not going to like yeah. it? That's fair. You can already answer this question, but cats or dogs? Yeah, not a cat person. <laughs> yeah, and dogs occasionally. So I have one, but there's occasionally. <laughs> occasionally, Bugsy's alive. When, when he's older, I'll be. It'll be a lot more full time. Yeah. Um, if you could live or vacation anywhere in the world, where would you go? Huge fan of Las Vegas. Not sure I could live there. A little too close. Because for we all know why. Yeah. <laughs> Good <laughs> little, memories there. A little too close for comfort, but I, I love Mexico. There's just something about there. The food and the culture and the beaches and the weather. Um, if I had the, it just feels comfortable to me and it's where, you know, my family goes, you know, after the season, spend some time there. Uh, I love all the tropical places in the world. Don't get me wrong, but there's something about, um, just being there. It slows down and I, I really enjoy it. Uh, what does success mean to you? Being a good dad, being a good boss, um, you know, treating people right, relationships, that that's what grounds me it's it's not money it's not success that all stuff comes i think from doing all the little things right so if you treat people right it, it tends to come around and and hopefully you know remain positive and and do all the little things right and and good things happen that's like super that. cool and um who is the best basketball player of all time oh gotta be michael jordan gotta be michael jordan i mean now take. listen <laughs> I, I'm older than is you guys. A, is that even a hot take at this point? I don't. Uh, it's like I don't so. you, either way, it's a hot take. No matter what you uh, take, right? I mean, I don't even know what a hot take is. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I will Sorry. say this: I, in my era, it was Michael Jordan. I respected, obviously, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, and the guys yeah. that came before uh, Dr. J, Julius Irving, all those guys. But nobody revolutionized the game like Michael Jordan, and I don't think to this day anybody has revolutionized the game. To, hit, to the level that he has. He really fundamentally changed basketball. Um, you know, Kobe and uh, LeBron and all these other tremendous players are just continuing, I think, what Michael did. And that's, that's my take. Uh, I have a ton of respect. It's hard to pick the best when you have some, some of the best athletes and players I've ever played in the last century. Or, you know, it's... Um, it's going to be a toss-up, but that's my go-to. Yeah, respectful. All right. Well, that's all of our questions. Thank you so much, for Mike, for coming on our podcast. This was a really good conversation. Awesome. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you me. so yeah, much. You. En enjoy. Uh, and I'll say, go Nighthawks, but uh, don't tell the other 19s. <laughs> <laughs> okay? That'll be our lead into yeah. the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>